Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. I'm reaching the end of 2021 and it's been quite a ride this year in the real and the professional worlds. And Packet Pushes is not here to tell you about your personal life and to bang on about emotional problems. So let's just focus on the professional world. Now, obviously, the COVID pandemic has had a substantial impact on network technology. And for many companies, both vendors and customers, SD-WAN and data center upgrades were put on hold while we all rushed to projects for distributed work. So a lot of things changed over this year. And so, of course, in 2020 was the same. But there's been a definite rise in the way that the industry has changed. I think in 2021, we've seen a whole lot of transitions going on where things that were not important two years ago have come to fruition in 2021, as we've seen customers start to ask new things of their vendors and vendors have had time to start to pivot their existing products, their existing strategies around to that. So in today's show, it's just the packet pushes. It's Ethan Banks, Drew Conry Murray, and myself, Greg Farrow. We've assembled to consider where we are in the network market today and take stock of what we see has happened in 2021 and maybe even prognosticate a little about where we're going. Although generally we don't prognosticate about the future. We leave that for our other shows uh, like the network break and so forth, where we actually try and predict the future or analyze where we're going. So first of all, gentlemen, welcome to this, the end of 2021. The show will go out in mid-December just before we shut down for the Christmas period. How are we all feeling at the end of this end of this year? Tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. Tired? Yes. So you're not feeling energized and stimulated by this ex- excitement in the marketplace? No, it's definitely been an interesting time watching the technology uh, industry and technology professionals have to grapple with the sudden shift to remote work and then the long-term debate over how much remote work are we going to need to support going forward uh, and watching how the industry and technology have changed in terms of new interesting things in the data center, the rise of so-called AI ops and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, there is a lot to talk about it and it is exciting. Hmm. It's interesting to see how things change and how are you, Ethan, are you ready for the Christmas break? Yeah, of course I'm ready for the Christmas break. Aren't we all? I mean, it's uh, it's better. 2021 was a darn sight better than 2020. Am I right? But uh, yeah. still, it's it's been a long year, and uh, and for yeah. sure, and and a lot of interesting things happened in the industry, as you've uh, alluded to, Greg. So why don't we jump into that mm-hmm. conversation? Yeah, well, I'm going to kick it off with this idea that networking got a lot more complex and a lot messier in 2021. So if you sort of cast your mind back to 2019, 2020. We were all about the data center, the software defined data center and software, you know, that sort of software defined data center. And then SD-WAN was just coming out to be the, the exciting future. And we were also just starting to get to grips with cloud direct connection. So everybody wanted to run MPLS pipes into their public cloud providers instead of, you know, going in through the front end. And as we go to the end of 2021, I think things have become much more complicated. So we now have your legacy data center. We now have your new data center, you know, the the cloud on-prem software operated data center might be intent-based data center. You've also got your WAN, you've got your SD-WAN, but increasingly you've got an on-prem WAN or a self-owned WAN, which is your legacy MPLS, but you've also got people deploying SD-WAN, which is this uh, internet cloud-based, a lot of the operation stuff is done from cloud services, the edge networking, and then security got laid on the top of it. 
And then if you look at the campus, we've seen a shift away from the old campus, which was I just connect to the network and everything's good, to a much different model now where the campus is getting into micro-segmentation. We've seen Cisco make a big push around its um, SD campus thing and, and Aruba's got very big at, at laying security and identities on there. Uh, I guess the thing that struck me with 2021 is that everything got complicated. There's, like, there's not just one network. Like we used to have three networks, the data center, the way, and the campus. And now we have, I don't know, 2,600 or something? I don't, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, so, so I'll say it's complicated, but it is optionally complicated. That is, you can still run your networks as you have, but the way the market has productized a lot of these little niches, you can build quite a complicated network with a lot of features and functionality that solve uh, very specific problems depending on the segment of the network that you're in. So mm. how did you decide to deploy those features did you go all in and go with the latest and greatest for whatever little section of the network you're in, your cloud network or your data center or whatever it is? Or have you kind of been doing things the way you have been? Because you do have hmm. both options, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's just so much more of everything. Like before we used to, you know, if you knew a bit of switching, knew a bit of routing, you knew some routing protocols, you knew you used the same thing for the campus, you know, spanning tree in the data center, spanning tree in the campus. There were some subtle differences between the two, but it wasn't dramatically different. Wi-Fi was, you know, radically different because the Fi layer was, uh, is so different to running a cable, but not the actual, you know, packets and frames wasn't that much different. And yet now we're talking 5G all the time. We're talking uh, distributed work, people working from home, from coffee shops in remote offices, casual offices. Uh, you, vendors can't go and visit customer premises anymore. Customers are reluctant to let them on premise. There's so much change here that I, I don't know. Like it didn't get easier somehow. It definitely didn't get easier. I think from my perspective, what we're seeing is an acceleration of trends that were already there. So for a long time, it essentially with the rise of uh, virtual machines uh, for running applications that made it easier for applications to get deployed faster. So that put pressure on the data center network to keep up with the pace of development. Then cloud accelerated that as developers can start running applications you know, with a credit card uh, and have instant resources, but there still need to be network controls around it. For remote access, you know, we've been doing VPN for a long time. We've been grappling with how to protect mobile users uh, or, on the, or salespeople on the road coming in. Uh, work from home really accelerated that issue where suddenly mm. you were much more reliant for day-to-day -day business operations on general purpose internet and somebody's, you know, home Wi-Fi router. So I feel like these are things we've been grappling with, but Technology and uh, the pandemic have accelerated those trends. So it's not necessarily different. It's just faster and more. I'm not sure if it's faster. Like, it, I mean, at the end of the day, IP is still IP and HTTPS is still HTTPS. And, you know, a lot of us are still using the same applications that we were before. But um, the fact that we're now using SaaS from third party. So a lot of people are moving, say, what was once your core accounting application is now hosted in a SaaS. And the question now is, how do you secure that? How do you um, add that into your networking portfolio? How do you monitor it? How do you know if it's working or not? Operability is kind of a thing. Well, well that's where a lot of the complexity is coming in. 
you don't have something that provides you with connectivity anymore. Isn't it interesting how SD-WAN went from the thing we, it seems like show after show, we couldn't stop talking about because there were so many vendors in the space with their angles on how to do it and products uh, for SD-WAN. And now we've got, who talks about SD-WAN anymore? That's a feature of Sassy. That's just like a thing you get. That's the easy part, the connectivity, it's boring. Now we've got yeah. to layer in all the security. Well, what does security mean? Well, security also implies identity. We have to understand what it is that, well, who it is we're speaking to and what it is that we're protecting, what the resources are, which layers on that much more complexity. Well, how are we gonna manage that? And so the, mm. now there's a, a policy complexity layer on top of that. Uh, that happens at a, at a centralized place. And so it's not just the thing that provides you connectivity, which is where we were. It's all of this other stuff that's piled onto all these products and then trying to make them all work together, which <laughs> to me, Greg, that's where the the difficulty is coming with these products. You go all in with one vendor to try to manage some of the complexity and hopefully it all works well together because it comes from one vendor. Um, mm. I, I mean, <laughs> best who talks about best of breed anymore, you know, because of this, just because you really kind of want to <laughs> go with one vendor if you can. So kind of the only yeah. way you're going to be sane. Which, you know, and that, that one vendor thing is very attractive because you want interoperability between the components. You want to reduce the friction of the different pieces, because if you've got a, a scene, like at a security level, there's just so many niche products inhabiting tiny little corners of the network that don't add value. Like for example, um, seams. It wasn't so long ago that you had to have a seam to capture, do to do the inspection, and then to do all the logging and to capture the logging for forensic analysis. And nowadays, you don't really get a separate seam anymore. You just it's just part of other products. Well, I guess it depends when you say buy from one vendor because that vendor's portfolio, it all has the same name on it, but it may also have been picked up through acquisition or whatever. And so all of the software underneath is not yeah. the same and how they interact is not the same. So you may be buying from one vendor. So you have a simplified purchase issue, but you're not that operational issue. You're still going to be, do these products actually interact? Do they communicate well? Do they talk together? Are you getting the benefits that are supposed to come from uh, that platform approach? I don't know that that's the case with most vendors. Well, I think it's also the fact that software has become easier to develop. So for security software, particularly, you've been now able to put security, a security app, you know, a firewall or a IDS or a proxy into a container on, on a network device, like a firewall or whatever it is that you, you particularly want to use. And for the first time, instead of having dedicated hardware appliances with, you know, mystical magic inside, AKA Intel CPUs, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's about it. Maybe a cust one custom piece of silicon from time to time. Um, it, you know, are we seeing that finally that software revolution is coming upon us in a way that we didn't really expect? It's something I often speculate about. I, mm, boy, I don't know that it's easier. Just, um, I don't know that I don't think that vendors have demonstrated how easy it is to make their products interoperate necessarily, especially with the point that you raised, Drew, about acquisition. We, we've seen so many acquisitions in this space, that almost to the point that I kind of think that's the play. A lot of these companies start up to solve some specific problem. Hey, the management for this platform blows. Let's make our thing and then hope we get acquired. We see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. But then as those products go into the portfolio, 
they still live off to the side as a separate thing. Sometimes there's not a lot of effort to integrate. Sometimes there is, but but sometimes there's not. And so I, mm. you know, I, I get your point, Drew, about not necessarily having a win from the interoperability because you can't assume that. Depending again, as you say, how the products were acquired. I guess. I guess what I was thinking there is we've seen companies like Fortinet and Palo Alto become networking companies. They acquired or built SD-WAN products. Um, so Palo Alto, of course, bought CloudGenix. Fortinet adapted its uh, VPN engine to become SD-WAN capable. And then now you've got firewalls acting as, you know, what four years ago we would have called routers. And they're SD-WAN, they've got firewalls, and now on top of that, uh, those same companies, you know, in the early days of SD-WAN, we had third parties like Xscaler offering off-prem services that you send your data through. And now Palo Alto has got Prisma, Fortinet's got its CASB product as they built themselves and built from the ground up. You can just send that data straight into it. And Cisco, same, of course. Um, you don't need a third party. You can buy one product that does all of those things, whereas, you know, two or three years ago, it was – one vendor for the router, one vendor for the firewall, one vendor for the security part. And then if I had to do on-prem, I, I had to put a proxy and then I would have a content scanning engine. And then, and now it's, it's all coming from one security company. Potentially. I mean, I think that's the appeal of SASE or Secure Access Services Edge, this cloud-delivered security services in that instead of lining up a bunch of appliances, you know, uh, behind the router, a firewall, an IPS, a web gateway, et cetera, you just punt it into the cloud and let them handle it. So that makes it more consumable uh, and presumably all of the operational complexity like with cloud is handled on the back end by the provider. So it's up to them to make sure you have a good experience and that actually operates as advertised. I see that primarily as the appeal of SASE, but we're still not seeing much of an uptake there. Yeah, that is, yeah, you're alluding to the fact that SD-WAN is still less than 10% of the overall market. Yeah. People well, are still wait a minute, doing... Wait a minute. We're arguing that the solutions in the network and the network that you end up with, depending on what products you invest in, becomes more complex. But Drew, based on something you just said there about uh, if I hand, if I have the cloud do this for me, it's a cloud praise uh, product. It should be easier, right? So how is it that all of this is more complex if we are delegating the responsibility of what these products are and do off to the provider? Uh, is it in fact getting easier or is it just one more thing we got to learn and in integrate into our networks? So I think the consumability of a cloud service is easier. Um, you just point your traffic at it and off you go, you make a few settings. The complexity starts to come in when I say, all right, how do I tie this into my sort of day-to-day -day operations, my identity system, my policy framework, who's allowed to go where, what kind of controls do I want on each user and application? Because that's where we're getting now with things like ZTNA, Zero Trust, trying to build policies specifically around individual users and individual applications, what those users are allowed to do with each application. So the technology becomes easier to consume, but we get more complexity around policy and management, I guess. And there's no industry standard for a lot of these things because the depth of the products and what they do have so much to them that to get the industry to rally around a standard where you can say, I'm shopping for this product that does this thing. Well, you know, ZTNA, for example, 
there is no one thing that defines what ZTNA is as an industry. So you can say, I'm looking for my ZTNA vendor. Yeah, there's, I'm sure Gartner's probably got a magic quadrant, right? But mm. we can't say based around an industry standard that ZTNA does this. I want a solution that does that. Here's the 12 vendors that participate in this space. And I pick a solution and they all do about the same thing. Now it's what are the problems that I have and how does this vendor solve that problem? And then learning the nuances of the solution that will vary. And, and as we know from talking to vendors, do vary uh, widely from vendor to vendor what the solution is. There's, there's a complexity there. Mm. Now you've bought into some product, whatever it is that you picked that was the best by, you know, whatever your uh, confluence of trade-offs are, budget and capability and staff to run the thing. Now you got to live with this thing. You're living with this thing long term and th it becomes the new constraint for the next thing that you need to buy. Well, mm -hmm. how well does it work with the thing that I've already bought, which introduces complexity yet again? But we're also seeing the emergence of new technologies, right? We've seen things like service mesh in containers, uh, which is a network over a network. And in some cases, it's even a network over the overlay, over the underlay. Um, you look, if you look at NSXT and the way that it, it tries to integrate Tanzu and it's to the VMs, to the physical underlay, it gets really confusing if you're running an on-prem cloud like that. And then if you start to look at, say, some of the VPN as a service products, like uh, people are using WireGuard in SD-WAN products a lot, or Terid you know companies like Teridian or uh, Cato Networks who are actually providing VPN as a service type functionality. And we've started to see distributed work companies integrate SD-WAN inside of their, you know, distributed work, remote access VPN. And then we've also seen um, uh, EDR companies, the ones that put agents on mobile phones and laptops start to say, well, why don't we just do the SD-WAN stuff there? And I think we're really starting to see some, and that's really complex. Like, do you, you know, if you've got a, a company that's running a campus network and wireless and you've got an on-prem data center where you've got some existing apps and you've started to do some on-premise cloud and now you're doing some off-premise cloud and you've got some off-premise SaaS and then you've got an SD-WAN and now you've got some VPNs as a service and you've got like, it, that's an awful confusing mess, I think, if you've got all of those or some of those. And there's a challenge of roles and responsibilities too. Uh, it is... Confusing mess. I don't know. I mean, because if we take a step back, the job of the network engineer is the same as it always has been. First and foremost, connectivity. Uh, secondly, it, it always seems to be the security of that connection. The nature of what we use as transports has made the security aspect of things complex and the <laughs> all the security theater that we're playing to try to secure our applications, you know, lots of noise around our different applications, security theater, I like to call it, because, uh, come on, at the end of the day, I don't know how good of a job we end up doing with all these products that we buy. Uh, if the application's insecure, it's insecure. But um, to make all of that work together with the panoply of various ways that we have to access stuff and where stuff mm. is that we need to have it, it introduces complexity. So, I, yeah. so Greg, I think we need to move the conversation along to this mm -hmm. question, which is how do we manage the complexity? That is, 
I've got, as a network engineer, I've got this mess of things that I use to connect to the cloud, to connect to my on-prem, to connect to my remote offices, to connect my remote users who are all working from home now. All right, what does that even look like? It used to be, remember back in the day, we had our red light, yeah. green light, glorious SNMP network management station, <laughs> and oh, we could see all the things and all our devices, and you know, and 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 it was wonderful. And if it wasn't simple, at least it was contained in a way that you could kind of have your head around what that network was. So when yeah, you throw all yeah. that out the window, and you're trying to manage all the things that we used to manage as we ever have endpoint response time and application performance and so on. What does that even look like now? Because we might still have our network management yeah. station, but it's only going to reflect a part of the network probably. I think the first thing to realize is that networks are more complex. If you take the premise that things didn't get simpler somehow, um, things are much more complex than they were before. We've got more stuff spread across more use cases. And this is this is something that always happens when we go through a technology transition. When you go from the previous to the next, you end up sprawled across the old and the new, if that makes sense. And in that sense, you know, everybody says we're going to go into the cloud and yet they've still got most of their stuff on premise and it'll be years before they migrate away to the cloud. And the, the, the pandemic that we've seen for the last two years is probably in some cases or for a few companies, it's accelerated their cloud deployment because they see that as a way to go forward. But I think for the majority of companies, the cloud migration got put on hold because it was just too hard while we make the transition to remote work, while we make the transition to working in new ways, while there's all these new technologies, there's just too many directions that we're going in. How do we pick the one that's right for us? So I do feel that one way to manage complexity is just to say, we're going to slow down. We're just going to stay with something that we know and take some time to wait for the world to catch up. Do you think, you think you're seeing that, Drew? Are we seeing that in the market or in the vendor stuff? No, the absolute opposite. Uh, you can't ever slow down because, you know, we're in the midst of this and I'm using air quotes here. You can't see digital transformation. And so mm -hmm. there's so much pressure on businesses to um, be moving faster, to release new applications, to update applications, to find new ways to reach customers and serve customers that you can't just be like, wait, hold on. I've got all this technical debt and I've got all this complexity. I'm trying to get my arms around. You can't ever stop. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I don't think we can stop. <laughs> Well, Which is part of the problem. Okay, though, uh, I give you, I submit to the court uh, VMware on cloud, VMC, VMC on AWS and its various uh, components, or which Azure, is kind Google of the halfway. Cloud, or Oracle, yeah. or Alibaba. <laughs> <Right>. or, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but the point being, it's a way to slow down while still progressing. Um, let's keep it all the same. Let's move to cloud, but change things minimally, kind of like way back in the day, I don't want to move off the CAT 6500. So let's move to the CAT 6800. It's the same, but faster. Sort of, sort of like that. Yeah, I guess I, I take your point there. And something like VMware and AWS always struck me as not the best use of cloud because you're essentially paying twice. You're paying VMware once and paying AWS once, but it allows an organization to say, okay, we do have some kind of strategy. And this is essentially a delaying tactic where we're taking some of that physical operational complexity and shifting it over to AWS to let them worry about power and cooling and servers while we still run our apps on uh, a management platform <laughs> we're comfortable with, right? And we'll pay for the privilege, but at least we can say, yes, boss, we're in the cloud. I, I don't disagree with your analysis, but just when you were talking about that, the, the cost trade-offs that come with that model, Drew, it can be so much worse. Have you seen the pricing for <laughs> VMC on AWS Outposts? 
Good Lord. I mean, that's public. You can just go click on it. I mean, your your price of entry is a, a million and change wow. to run VMC, uh, VMware Cloud on Outpost, which is their servers in your data center. So that's <laughs> that's gloriously priced um, but and follows even more closely with your, your line of thinking there that basically you're paying twice. Anyway, there are things people will do for certain operational models, I guess. Um, but that's an aside. That's an aside. I, I, another question here about managing the complexity is where we're at with automation, because I still see this as this very diverse set of approaches, tools, tooling, uh, vendors that will help you with low level stuff because you want to script in Python and run Ansible playbooks or go all the way up the stack like, uh, Abstra. We're going to basically do it all for you. Um, as long as you prescribe to our specific set of constraints, so is automation helping us with complexity? On the one hand, the answer is yes. Uh, on the other hand, the answer is no, because now I've got this complex set of tools that I have to understand and learn how to use that makes my life potentially uh, more complex and, and maybe as a foot gun. Yeah. Automation is so difficult because when you're talking about your legacy brownfield network, trying to automate that can be so hard because it can be so brittle and so duct taped together that it's very easy to automate yourself into an outage and you don't want to do that. And so you have to move very carefully. You've got to be very careful in your scripting and your code checking and doing all that. Uh, starting Greenfield might be a little easier, which is why we see folks like Appster saying, look, we're not worried about brownfield. You, you build a new essentially pod in a data center and we'll handle it from there. I feel like, SD-WAN, one of the reasons it took off so much is because it's an actual example of automation that does work for the network engineer. Mm -hmm. um, based on what we hear from customers is that, yes, the, the automatic failover basically works. So I don't have to worry too much about, you know, I set up my two links and if one goes down, traffic still continues to flow and I didn't really have to do anything about it. I know I'll get the alert and I'll go investigate why link A went down. But in the meantime, traffic is still flowing. We haven't seen something that easy to use and with such demonstrable value come into the data center yet, I think in part because the data center is just harder to do. Well, arguably AI ops is a revolution in that sense. Now, to be fair, AI ops started in the Wi-Fi space, largely because it was a much simpler place to start in the early days of uh, the, you know, the AI, ML, DL, you know, I'm still not entirely convinced that we're actually using artificial intelligence, but let's, let's go with the, let's go with the handle for the sake of the argument. For the sake uh, of the argument, we're saying AI. Okay. <laughs> yes. But let's, let's go and let's pretend that AI ops is actually using AI and not just some sort of automation for operations that was fairly obvious 20 years ago, but nobody actually bothered to implement it realistically. Um, and, but we've seen Juniper really get traction with customers around its mist. You know, they acquired the mist company, which was doing AI for ops. Of course, VMware acquired another company called Niantza, which was doing similar sorts of things. Uh -huh. And, you know, they had done a whole bunch of automated troubleshooting. They didn't call it AI because it was just like workflows and work packages and, you know, check your DNS. If somebody's reporting the problem with Wi-Fi, why don't you check the DNS? It's kind of obvious, right? There's only a finite number of things. Um, so I think one of the things that we're seeing rising out of this complexity problem is the rise of AI ops or the rise of automation starting right the way down at Python and Ansible. And I, I mean, I still maintain that Python and Ansible is a bit, is very retro. It's perfectly fine to automate a legacy network with that. So if you've got a campus running spanning tree or a, an on-prem data center with some switches and 
maybe even doing some EVPN, that makes sense. But if you're going to build a new network, I don't think, you know, handcrafted artisanal Python scripting is going to help you. I think you do need to step up to some sort of intent-based platform or some sort of SD-WAN software or, you know, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? If you could build it from scratch, yeah, you would build it uh, in that way because you are not constrained by the interfaces you have to work with on that brownfield network. So Python and Ansible can be applied to almost any situation you've got, which is why I think they're possible. Plus the cost of admittance is basically zero. You can get started. You don't have to ask anybody for permission. But right, if you're doing something new, that implies there's a budget and you can control very specifically how you're doing things. And so why would you do a bunch of artisanal stuff? You didn't invest in a system that's got automation and intent baked into the solution from the ground up. That allows you to build a system that is nicely constrained. You want those constraints to limit what you can do. That is an automatable sort of a system. Whereas what you're trying to do that's been you know, your network that kind of grew over the last 20 years with all kinds of oddball things and who the engineer was at the time and who your supplier was at the time means you've got this disaster. You've got to create your own automation system to handle versus net new. I can do it right. I can do it in a, in a lovely way. And yeah, of course I would, uh, I would invest in that sort of a system if I, if I could. Mm. I think the other thing we're seeing about automation is that something like mist, uh, does in fact leverage the cloud where they can build these giant data lakes to do actual statistical analysis, machine learning, whatever you want to call it mm. on an, a gigantic data set that then gives them some confidence in that. We know that if we do X, Y will happen. Whereas a human just, you know, in trying to understand the entire state of a, a data center network can't with their script. Um, so I think the cloud is helping and enable automation at scale because it has the scale to match the need. Whereas, and you know, it's also, Python, Ansible, do, DIY, do it yourself, you know, for limited jobs, yes, but for multi-device, you know, multi-system, multi-service automation, I don't know if someone can hand script that together. It's interesting that, and the, and the weird thing that happens here, and this is a dichotomy, is if you've been handcrafting Python and Ansible to automate your network, you may not have the right mindset to actually say, I'm going to get a, I'll use somebody else's product to do that for me. Like I would maintain that if you're doing something in Python and Ansible, you'll be more practical to just go and pay a vendor to do that for you and then write Python and Ansible over the top. So, you know, if you're getting an Abstra and let's say you're buying an Alkira to do uh, cloud integration, like multi, multi-business unit integration via an overlay network in the WAN, you still want to start stitching those together. So really your Python and Ansible moves you up to a different place. But if you've been doing Python and Ansible for, you know, configuring artisanal CLI configurations, you know, or finger defined networking, you really don't have the right mindset to move up to the next level if you're not careful or if you're not strategically analyzing what you're doing. It's, it's approximately similar to if you've been configuring networks at the command line for 20 years and then suddenly SDN comes along and changes the way that it works, it takes you a while to make the transition. Is that a, is that a viable line of argument or am I off the wrong track? I, I mean, I guess I feel like that's kind of what my point was in that large-scale automation orchestrated across multiple device types and services is very hard and maybe something that only, you know, a machine or a set of machines can do as opposed to 
I've got some scripts sort of in my tool belt that's like a Swiss army knife where, you know, instead of configuring, making X change on 10 servers, I run a script to do it instead. That's, you know, one type of device, one job versus a multi-orchestrated, you know, automation system. Mm. Yeah. Again, the, the differentiator to me between the Brownfield network and the Greenfield network is the Brownfield network is unconstrained. It's just a mess of stuff that is very difficult to orchestrate because there are right. no bounds on those interfaces when you have a, that net new network that you can define exactly what it's going to look like and what the interfaces are, how things are going to be plugged together, what protocols you're going to use, what things you're going to support and not support topologically. It gets much easier to, to automate that. And Drew, I mean, we know because of the number of products that are and in fact are not on the market, how hard it is to do multi-vendor orchestration. There's a few mm -hmm. out there that are successful and they've taken on some very specific internal architectures like, like Glueware has with the way they do data modeling to be able to accomplish that. It's super hard to do that work. And so you will get a very different product like Abstra that is multi-vendor, but they're do their constraint is doing a very specific network topology mm. that they've constrained themselves with so that they right. can guarantee you success. Which doesn't really help when the place where you really need automation is that brownfield that's running business critical applications, but you don't want to do it at human speed. You need to do it at automate machine speed. So where yeah. do we go from? Where do, what do we do about but the brownfield in terms of automation? But the thing is that, and this comes down to where you start looking at the thing, at the tree instead of the forest. My point, if you wind the way back to the starting premise, which is if you're using AI ops, it's because your data center is now much more complicated than it was before. And you have to have a tool to, to, to handle the complexity. So if you've got a data center of some size, like obviously if you've got 30 machines in your data center, this doesn't necessarily apply to you. But if you've got some services hosted in a cloud, you've got some services in an on-prem, you've got some connected to a legacy switch network, possibly running spanning tree, and you've got more of it connected to another network. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like all these different things. You, you need tools to, to bring the complexity under the diversity, just the diversity under control. And I would also maintain you still need programming. You still need to be scripting to do things across those platforms because you're not going to get one product. You're not going to get uh, an SD-WAN platform that integrates perfectly with your campus Wi-Fi, which works correctly with your distributed work platform. Or if you do, there'll be some other gap in there that, that isn't covered and you need to unify them together in some way. Yeah, we're talking about a present reality, but I also wonder how much of this is transitional. That is for a lot of companies, you can say this, these difficulties go away because I really am going to move everything to cloud. And therefore the problems I have with network connectivity and security I'm changing the way that's all going to look because my problem space is going to be constrained to cloud. Um, I'm I'm really simplifying it by making that statement, but but I think that is where some companies go. Other companies, no, they're going to be living with the the need to integrate multiple clouds and on premises and remote users forever. Mm. But I do think for some people listening to this, the ultimate solution isn't going to be how do I permanently manage the complexity of a bunch of different connectivity and security platforms? 
and it's going to be the problem will be redefined. We're going to we're going to deal with these problems by engineering some of this out. We're going to make the on-premises stuff go away. It's all going to live in cloud and we'll have a central model for how we interconnect. You'll probably have the multi-cloud problem. You're still going to have to deal with that across your AWS and Azure and GCP and you know miscellaneous other things and you'll have to pair that with remote access. But that's a much more bounded problem than when we have uh, on-premises added to it and private networks added to that mm. mix. Mm. Yeah, I guess I, I disagree think, in that yeah. we're not going to cloud our way out of this. Um, there are legacy systems that are generating millions and billions of dollars for businesses and they can't touch them and move them to the cloud. It's just not that easy. They'll be doing net new development in the cloud. Yes. So you're just adding cloud to your complexity mix as opposed to eliminating it. I think mm. some people will be able to cloud their way out of it over time. I I, I agree. I agree, Drew, that there is definitely a permanent problem for a lot of companies, for sure. But I do think for well, some people, they're, they're going to cloud yeah. their way out. Right, yeah, I think that's 20 true. years from then, now, we'll come back and see if we have the same conversation. Yeah, my instinct is that some companies will cloud their way out of it and then realize how much it's costing them. And then they realize that they can cut costs by 50% by moving it back on prem. And, you know, that today you can sit there and say, oh, but we can move faster. Oh, but there's tangible, you know, intangible. I can, I can do dirt, you know, you can run around going cloud's going to be awesome. And the intangibles, you can claim how valuable the intangibles are, but at some point the CFO is going to ride through your cloud pitch that yes, it's 300% more expensive, but I don't care. I just want it cheaper. See, this and is the thing. You, I, yeah, yeah, I had, uh, I, I bumped into somebody and they found out I was, you know, uh, in the tech sort of industry. And they were, I, they said, Oh yeah, we he was a lawyer. He said, our firm is moving to the cloud because it's cheaper. And I was like, Oh God, like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and if that's what people are, you know, that that's the whole issue with this. We're going to cloud our way out of it because it's, it's not cheaper. It's a, it's a different thing. Cloud is about, you know, velocity and scale, not about cost savings. Mm. And if people are thinking cloud because of cost savings, they are in for a world of hurt. <laughs> and yes, you're right, Greg, they're going to be like, the CFO is going to be like, what are we doing? Yeah. I, I don't even think about cloud in terms of cost savings. It's an operational model that matters, which actually goes against my argument before, uh, because it's getting easier and easier to do cloud-like operations on-premises. There are uh, a number of platforms now, most of them based on Kubernetes, that make it easier for you to cater to the developer's needs to spin up a container and just run the thing and have it easy for them and be part of their deployment pipelines now and that can uh, very often just includes the networking the networking just happens once you've done some basic yeah. plumbing yeah, it certainly can but there are prices to be paid that somebody else is building all that provisioning somebody else is charging you for that deployment and all that sort of oh, and, I, I, but i'm saying you can own it all greg mm -hmm. own all the metal have it run on premises and have a cloud-like experience you know, what the ultimate cost and spend will be is it going to be cheaper than public cloud um, yeah, I think there's a, there's an opportunity for discussion there that, that is possible. That is certainly possible. I, th I just feel like that wheel will turn at some point and it, it remains to me like we needed to ch overhaul our on-premise infrastructure. But what we know is that after the last 10 years is that people just don't, they just keep doing the same thing over and over and so the public cloud thing makes sense. And there is certainly cost benefits and improvements and, and enhancements and, you know, that ability to access unlimited storage and unlimited compute and custom services like AI platforms. But equally, we've seen NVIDIA announce that you can go and buy 
three racks of equipment and there's your AI platform. Uh. It comes turnkey with the whole AI service in a box. Or we're seeing HPE with its uh, green, green lake green service. Lake. Yeah. yeah. You can go and buy, you know, two racks of thing and it's a database as a service. Or you can go to, to HP Esmeral and buy whole applications as a service, backups as a service that run on-prem. And you can literally say to them, I need this many terabytes of backup and they'll bill you by the terabyte. So there are signs of a post-cloud world, if that's like a post-off-prem world. And I also think we're seeing... Uh, transitions come in around the edge. So if we've looked at um, what's been happening with uh, Cloudflare and they are now able to run serverless in their CDN at the edge of the network, it's super interesting to see what they're going to be doing. Um, it does that take away something. So for example, Cloudflare announced that if you want to store data in on their site, they'll charge you like one fifth of what AWS is doing. And then this week, AWS announced that it's changing all its pricing. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, so there are still changes to happen. I mean, obviously the, this is not a fixed, this, you know, this is not. And, and, and if it's problem. up to me, you know, if I'm the architect, mm -hmm. a lot of this, I would just as soon be someone else's problem. So if the service is there and the pricing is reasonable, <laughs> Yes, please, Amazon, do it for me. But if I can't justify that cost, then I'll look at uh, bringing it on-premises, but uh, but delivering a cloud-like experience if I can. But who wants to be in the business of managing their own data centers at this point? I've done enough of that in my life. I'm just as happy to have whatever my compute resources and networking are live somewhere else. Thank you very much. And I'd mm. like to think that over time, the costs will become... It, no longer a concern, just kind of like, yeah, the costs are the costs and it's more expensive, but not that much more expensive because Cloudflare Flare drove down AWS pricing and back and forth. And, uh, you know, we've kind of settled to a happy medium that it's a manageable cost. And I would rather have it be someone else's problem by and large. So I can just assume that the networking mm. and the security and the compute is all Lego bricks. And I call upon the thing with an API and snap it together and boom, off I go. But the, the thing I think there is you, you swap a manageability problem with an observability problem. Okay, I'm getting this service from Cloudflare. Are they delivering the SLAs? Uh, and am I making sure I'm monitoring those costs? So you're, you're now sort of like, you know, just watching a meter in your meter reader. Is that uh, Mr. Conroy Murray, you lack faith. I find your lack of faith <laughs> disturbing. Just believe, sir, that they are delivering what they say they will. All will be well. Okay. <laughs> But I think, I think I guess that's part of my issue is that yes, you are offloading the infrastructure problem to somebody else, but there are still things you have to worry about, like good old access control. Are people are the right people getting access have access to this environment? Who what are my developers up to? Uh, what what's the configuration of the system to make sure I'm not you know that classic S3 bucket that's open to the internet kind of thing? So it's yes, you are offloading some issues, but you're getting a whole bunch of others coming on your plate. Mm. I think one of the other things that we might be seeing, and this, this is a very thin argument, I think, but I'll, I'll lay it out there, is we're seeing a lot of vendors switch over to using subscription revenue. Instead of selling your product and you buy it and then you own it, they're moving to a subscription. Now, that obviously is driven through shareholders demanding that legacy companies become cloud services. They want recurring revenue because it smooths out the revenues. You don't have to guarantee that, you know, for if you're selling a box, do you know what next quarter's numbers are like? If you if you can't tell me, but if you have a bunch of subscription revenue and what we're now seeing 
is that technology vendors are sitting on $6 billion, $20 billion, $40 billion worth of revenue. They call it RPOs, remaining performance obligations. That is booked out for the next three years. That is revenue they're guaranteed to get, even if they do nothing, right? And I do have a feeling that, you know, that, that we are either entering a period of stagnation because vendors don't need to innovate to keep bringing that revenue through the door because it's locked in. It's guaranteed to happen. Or we're reaching an inflection point where we've had, we've reached, um, received or developed all the technology that we now need to go through a revolution. And now we need time to buy it, accept it, budget for it, deploy it, operate it, extract value from it. I wonder if you've got any sense of that. Does that, is that a viable argument? Do you think? I, my first point would be that legacy vendors don't innovate. They let the market do that and then buy uh, whatever they think the latest innovation is. So that model is already baked in. Uh, once they've got you, they're just going to keep you and they don't care about new innovation. Um, and I sort of wonder, do customers prefer the subscription model? Because at least, you know, their costs now are a little bit more predictable, even if it's maybe higher than if you just bought it outright. It's, it's just, I just a concern, right? It could be that we're at the end point of a technology inflection, software defined, software defined left to software defined when, um, which led ultimately to, um, um, you know, intent-based networking and all the things around that. The question would be is, is that what we're at? Are we at a point where all the technology we need for the next revolution is now here and done? Or are we talking about something that's very different and saying like, well, we've got all this money. The vendors are saying like, we've got it. You know, we don't need to really spend money buying new companies or buying new products. So we're just done. So we don't have to innovate. I'm concerned about. So so if you look at what AWS is doing in, in public cloud, most of the new services they're offering are more incremental. They're not core. They're not core functionality. Okay, take a step back from AWS and and the rest, the big three, and look at what smaller cloud providers are doing. They're beginning to add features to make it feel more AWS-like. Case in point, someone like uh, Vulture, who uh, I use for some VPS services. Yeah, but now they'll do start doing some turnkey stuff for you. Wanna? I think they're doing a database offering now, and some of the things that feel a little more PaaS-like. They're just trying to figure out if they have a you know a niche in there to begin competing. Um, my point being to answer your question, Greg, you know, my take on have we got all the technology we need? Yeah, and beyond. Look at the core number of services that are being consumed at public cloud. What are they? Well, it's S3 storage and it's EC2 compute. Okay, those are the the things that people are consuming the most. Why? Because it's what everyone needs. It's what everyone has to have. And all the tooling's built around that stuff. All of the core functionality of the services are built around to the to the nth degree. I mean, my word, do we so do we have enough technology? Yes. Uh, we can build on it now. Now it's like, okay, we need to retool applications to work on this technology. And if we can slow down and figure out what cloud native even looks like and make our app either get rid of the old apps and replace them with something that can do that, that's going to take us a long time to get there. So a little stagnation would help with adopting the new model. Mm. That would be great. And we can also filter out some of the ideas that just aren't working and then give some, I think security is the, the where we are going to continue to see more um, I was going to say innovation, but that's such a crap word. We're going to see different approaches <laughs> being taken to try to yeah. solve some of these problems in the new paradigm. But things like networking and, again, those more 
boring services like just raw compute and storage and stuff, I don't see that they're going to change that much because why do they need to change that much other than give me more for, give me, give me faster for less money. You know, that's not really innovating either. Um, but to go back to security for a second, things like eBPF are just new and look really interesting and potentially could solve problems. And that's a, a world that's going to continue to, um, to change. Other, otherwise, I think some stagnation would be wonderful. Give everybody time to catch up. As you guys are talking, I've been thinking about what's the biggest, most significant innovation I've seen probably, I guess, in my career. And I think I would probably have to say server virtualization because the impact that it had, not just uh, on servers, not just on application development, but across the whole industry. I feel like that's the biggest one I've seen. And I don't know that I see anything that significant coming on the horizon. And maybe that's good because we're still like containers was the next big thing and, and, you know, Kubernetes and, and orchestrating containers. And now people are getting ready to abandon that for serverless or for edge or whatever. So there's still so much to digest that I don't know that we need more innovation. Mm. What we need is better ways to handle and secure the things we have now. Speaking of serverless, a lot of people have tried to cram their compute into the serverless world where it kind of doesn't fit. Uh, And some people are beginning to backpedal on that. So we're still in this mode of we've got all these things. We're trying to figure out how it works and what works for us. And then going, oh, now that we tried serverless in this example, the operational model doesn't exactly work the way we thought it might for our application because uh, cold start times, because cost didn't work out the way we thought the model was going to be. Point being exploration of new technologies is happening and adoption is happening, but people are figuring out what works and what doesn't. We're even seeing that with cloud though, right? With things like repatriation. So Mm -hmm. uh, again, Mm -hmm. a little stagnation wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah. uh, There's two sides here. One is that innovation is slowing because we've got everything we need and we've got more than we can absorb. And I think that's a viable argument. And you could make the debate that, as you just pointed out, we've got containers, we've got serverless, We're starting to see the tools that public clouds have offered to turn up on premise. We're seeing uh, the rise of what I call the illities, visibility, manageability, observability, interoperability, you know, the use of APIs for interoperability instead of some arcane protocol um, that you try and standardize is a a major transition. Um, Vendors are very much focused on day two. One advantage of subscriptions is that vendors are now forced to focus on day two. Like how easy is it to operate this technology? How easy is it to use this technology every day? Because it's no longer about speeds and feeds and, you know, all those types of things that we used to have. It's now about what is this like to use every single day? Because the day I have to come up to this subscription license and pay it again, you know what I'm thinking of? I'm not thinking of this switch having 96 ports at 400 gig. I'm thinking of how horrible, how many bugs were in this code, how horrible (laughs) the user interface. Do you know what I mean? Like there is a transition here. It cuts both ways. So just uh, one more thing that the word stagnation, I feel like is pejorative. So I feel like what we're in maybe now is a period of optimization. We've got a bunch of new stuff. We're Mm. trying to understand it and figure it out how it works. And to that point, Greg, we are day two operations is about optimization. How do I actually make this work for me now that I've got it in place? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you could call it an interregnum or you could call it, uh, you know, we, technology is probably an example of what's called punctuated equilibrium. Right. So if you talk about evolution, it's a period of, there are spikes of intense transition where mm-hmm. a, a technology arrives or a phase of new technologies emerge that we rapidly move to adopt. 
and then we stop. So if you look back, say, around the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, the dot-com boom era, a huge period of change. Maybe it was innovation. Maybe it was just change. <laughs> we could argue one way or the other, perhaps. And then from somewhere around about the mid-2000s until the late 20, say, 2015, nothing changed. We had slightly faster hard drives, slightly bigger hard drives, slightly faster networks, you know, but at the end of the day, we were still using all the same backup routines, the same operating systems, the same tools until suddenly, you know, the, the idea of software operated infrastructure came along generally. So, you know, software defined networking, software defined backup, software defined servers, the rise of virtual machines, the success of the virtual machines, you know, all that stuff. So arguably, I think the big transition that we are seeing now is this focus on day two, that is owning it well, well, and maybe, operating. Maybe it's it's a riff on the uh, the quote, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed and we need some time for a more even distribution uh, that even distribution, that time it takes for companies to adopt is going to filter out what the normal paradigms are going to look like for our, uh, for our computing stacks. We just haven't had time for things to be distributed because you got the young <laughs> companies that are aggressive and are building this stuff themselves maybe and adopting it. And then the rest of us going, okay, that's cool. Can I use that? And then trying it on <laughs> to see how it's going to work out for us. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just a, it's just something to think about, you know, is subscription leading to stagnation or is it leading to better day two operations? Because the thing that you think about when you cut that purchase order for the next subscription licensing renewal or service, you know, the SaaS renewal that you get, what does that look like? I, I don't actually know. It, you know what, Greg? I feel though, it's the, probably the, a bit uh, of both. But. The subscription model, as long as that subservice you're buying the subscription for keeps solving the problem you have, Great, you'll keep buying that subscription and keep renewing it month over month. But the targets keep changing. That's the thing. We keep trying different stuff and all of a sudden that service we have doesn't work mm. for whatever the thing is anymore. And so we'll we'll cancel it. Will the subscription evolve quickly enough? If enough customers yeah, stop re renewing, then yeah, yeah, the subscription service will change. I, I, arguably, I don't think so. People are still sitting on campus switches from 20 years ago. People are still mm. running you know, servers that they bought 10 years ago and they've made, the customers have made maximum profits out of it when that happens. You bought it with a three-year, five-year cycle of ownership and you capitalized it and depreciated it. And if you can run it beyond that cycle, the customer captures that profit margin. But if you have a subscription license, the vendor captures that profit margin. Right. So if they can keep mm. selling you, it's like Microsoft Word. How much innovation have we seen in Microsoft Word in the last 20 years? But now you're paying $100 a year to use it to get what? Right. So I guess the question is, uh, where's the tipping point when vendors, you know, turn the screw one turn too many on the subscription pricing and also the value they're delivering for that subscription? If as part of that subscription, you know, every three years you've got to rack in new devices because that's part of the subscription license that they don't want to let you keep using older gear. That's going to have a, eventually somebody's going to be like, look, this is this switch is good for another two, three years. I don't want to keep having to swap it out. You know, so it, I think, the, <laughs> yes, the, 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 the vendors see an opportunity to capture more revenue from their customers and essentially hold them captive. But if they push that too hard, then people are going to start looking for another opportunity. Yeah. I, I, I just could, And the other challenge here, of course, is vendors who make in a pig's ear out of subscription licensing. You know, we have a number of people telling us, how thoroughly horrible <laughs> they are finding subscription licensing to handle. 
and they feel that the vendors aren't, you know, that, that some people are telling me they're now spending two, three and four days a week just working through subscription licensing. Yeah. And they're very unhappy. They don't feel like they're adding value. They don't feel like, um, this is a worthwhile satisfying job. Yeah. It's not a satisfying job, you know? So, you know, two years ago, you were doing this amazing stuff with your spanning tree and routing protocols and, you know, all that. And now you just spend your life reading pointless manuals around subscription licensing and features that are included in this and that. And you feel like you're being nickel and dimed. So it is really, you know, a thing. So maybe the next wave of innovation should be around product licensing. There's a, yeah. there's a business opportunity <laughs> there for a company to come along and be like, look, it's really simple. You use it and there it is. Mm. Oh, I hope not, because I'm going to peace out. I'll tell you, that's no way, man. Like imagine if you were back in the, you know, in the real world, looking at a price of a, you know, working out and the, the CEO is saying to you, you know, tell me what this means, you know, what does this subscription licensing do? And you have to spend a month trawling through manuals, looking up feature matrices and what are you trying to do an audit? It just, that just does not sound like fun. That's like what Microsoft did with its products. I do wonder. That, that Microsoft Office uh, example hit home because I'm like, wait, why am I paying hundred bucks again for Word? I, this this yeah. feels wrong. This, this, yeah. <laughs> Every year, how many more right. gold-plated back scratchers does Bill Gates need? Yes, yeah, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It is. It's just an interesting discussion. Well, I think we've come to the end. Uh, the, we have been blathering on for quite a long time. Just some different ideas that uh, struck me and I wanted to bring them to the team, get some discussion going. Uh, is there anything else that we need to cover today, Ethan, Drew? I'm good, man. I am. I am good. <laughs> if there is, we got to table it. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thanks so much for being with Packet Pushes here in 2021. It's been a, a, a crazy sort of a year. Obviously, the whole transition, the world around us, there's been so much going on in politics and in society and in a whole range of different parts of it, the technology that we all use, the, the, the transitions that we've seen to working from home or working remotely or not working remotely, whatever your case may be. Hopefully we've been part of this journey and been helping you out. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again in 2022. As always, the Packet Pushes is a network of podcasts and across our network, there's many more others. There's IPv6 Buzz, which is becoming more and more relevant as IPv6 Buzz gets much more active and becomes much more core to what everybody is doing. We also have Full Stack Journey, Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Strategy, and the Network Break. But thanks for being with us on Heavy Networking for 2021. Packet Pushers will be here again in January. We're having a few weeks break and we'll be here to see you again. Thanks very much. And as always, remember that... Too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>